Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's the Colin McEnroe Show. I'm John Dankosky sitting in for Colin today. We're doing something a little different. I'm going to be hosting a part of today's scramble. And then Jeff Cohen, our reporter, is going to be uh, talking about hockey, maybe coming back to Hartford later on in the show. But first, we don't often consider the extraordinary power of the American president until, of course, we feel those powers are being abused. David Frum says America may be a nation of laws, but they're only as good as the integrity of the people in charge of enforcing them. A president determined to use the law to enrich himself and those in a circle can, well, he can do that unless Congress and the courts step in to stop him. Last week, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit ruled the Trump administration didn't have the evidence to support reinstating their ban on immigration. The president called it a political decision. It's a political decision that we're going to see them in court and I look forward to doing it. He looks forward to it. Now, David Frum says public scrutiny by the press and public pressure from people might be the best way to save democracy from a president who seems to delegitimize those who serve to check the president's power. Uh, just a couple days ago, I did speak to David Frum. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic. He's a former speechwriter for George W. Bush, and we talked about his uh, cover story in the March issue of The Atlantic. It's called How to Build an Autocracy. David Frum, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So first of all, you paint a really vivid picture in this piece of a life in America where we could lose a lot of what makes us free without us even really noticing that it's gone. Maybe you could start us off with an example of what that might look like. Here's, a, here's an issue that's in the news right now. CNN is owned, of course, by Time Warner. Time Warner and AT&T are in merger talks. And Team Trump has communicated in various ways that uh, it will move slower or faster on those mergers according to whether it feels it's being treated by its lights fairly or unfairly by CNN. And many of us have noted that there's suddenly a lot of pro-Trump punditry on CNN. And more and more all the time. There's more during the election season and more and more now. Um, is that driven by the need to protect this merger? We don't know. Here's another example. Um, Twitter, uh, about two weeks before the election, canceled about a dozen white supremacist accounts. Um, whether that's a good decision or not, we all have our views, but, but tw Twitter's a private company, they have the right to do that. I knew from my reporting that people in the Trump world were extremely upset about this. Some of them had social contact with some of the people whose accounts were canceled. After the election, President Trump met with technology executives. Twitter's his favorite platform. They weren't invited, and they got the message and reinstated the accounts and verified them, too. Uh, Twitter, we're not used to thinking of Twitter as a media company, but if the New York Times had fired a columnist and Donald Trump had demanded that the columnist be reinstated, we would think that that was an invasion of freedom of the press. But when it happens with what are, in effect, columnists for Twitter, we, we're not yet ready to notice that. We're, we're not getting ready to notice that, and I, I think that there's a lot of things we're not quite ready to notice because the rules of engagement, I suppose, have been changed so much in just the last couple of weeks. I, I, I want to, though, go to this idea of whether or not all the things that you just said get at the heart of what a democratic America is supposed to be. I mean, there's always been pressure from government for media companies to do this or that. There's always been pressure from government for businesses to act this way or that way. Is this, near as you can tell, so much different 
than the world that existed pre-Trump. Um, we are mo- Donald Trump is not trying to build an autocracy. He's trying to become the richest man on the planet. Uh, his difficulty is that many of the things he'd want to do on his way to becoming the richest man on the planet are either illegal or improper under American laws or established rules. So he has to shut those things down. Let me give you another example. Uh, Donald Trump got into a confrontation with uh, China over his uh, conversation with the uh, president of Taiwan, a departure from the one China policy that the United States and China have agreed on since the early 1970s. Um, Donald Trump abruptly reversed course uh, just um, uh, just a couple of days ago, um, as was reported in the New York Times. Meanwhile, Donald, Donald Trump himself owns owes a couple hundred million dollars to the Bank of China, and Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, um, as the New York Times reported in November, has been doing enormous deals with Chinese investors. In fact, uh, Chinese money um, is saving a troubled investment that Jared Kushner has on his signature property, 666 Fifth Avenue. Um, those are things that we might want to know about, but we don't because the president hasn't released his tax return and because J- Jared Kushner is not accepting a salary and is not a salary government employee, he exempted himself from a lot of traditional disclosure rules. So, but we hear now um, what we'll call mainstream Republicans who are defending Donald Trump saying things like, well, look, the the president of the United States can't really have conflicts of interest. And so, all of these things that you're talking about right now, David, they may seem unseemly, but there's actually no mechanism for us to stop any of it. Well, the, the second half of what you say is absolutely true. There, there are a few mechanisms. I mean, the system has traditionally relied um, on the good sense and integrity of the president himself, his, his, his desire to comply with the law. Um, the law is not written to cope with a president who wants to defeat the law. Um, it's not true, by the way, that the president can't have a conflict of interest. What, what is true is that American law um, does not apply many of the conflict of interest mechanisms to the president. And his, that was a bargain that was sort of, sort of informally struck in the post-Watergate era, which is Congress passed a bunch of um, new conflict of interest rules. The president was exempted. And in exchange, the president did something absolutely unique. He voluntarily released his tax returns. So Congress has tighter rules. But members of Congress don't release their tax returns. The president is exempted from the rules. But every president from uh, Gerald Ford onward um, has released some or after Jimmy Carter all of his or her tax returns. Donald Trump won't, won't do that. Donald Trump has uh, refused to comply with the usual practices about uh, divesting himself. But the kleptocracy is the thing that sets him in motion. The danger is because the kleptocracy is going to um, raise suspicions, he has to shut down a lot of the institutions of control. I mean, you mentioned the Republicans in Congress. A lot of mechanisms of oversight are being shut down. Well, and before we go to the courts, which is the one that's right at hand this, this very week, let's talk about the Republicans in Congress. How is it that a Republican Party that throughout the course of that very long 2016 presidential campaign seemed to want to distance itself from Donald Trump and seemed to in no way embody any of the ideas that he was espousing, certainly uh, on the economic front uh, in some regards, that now no one in the Republican Party seems to want to challenge him on almost anything at the leadership level or right down the line. Well, they are motivated both by hope and by fear. Fear. Um, One of the most important centers of resistance to Donald Trump and the Republican Party was the Ohio, Republican Party of Ohio, Governor John Kasich's state, um, and also the Sen- Senator Rob Portman, both of them big Trump skeptics. The 
Ohio State Republican Party chose a new chairman or re was to reelect its chairman in January. The existing chairman was a protege of Governor Kasich's. And Trump, who doesn't have time to read his presidential daily intelligence brief, campaigned hard within the Ohio State um, Party Committee to win votes to defeat John Kasich's preferred candidate and instate install one of Donald Trump's preference. That is a powerful message to every Republican in the in the country. If Trump can reach into Kasich's state, state and overthrow the, the preferred ch party chairman of an incumbent governor. That's, that's a big message. Hope. Um, normally what happens when a new administration takes office is the president has a big ambitious agenda and the Congress is full of fallible human beings whose weaknesses the president must work through in order to achieve his agenda. This congressman is not super financially honest. Uh, uh, this congresswoman is... Um, maybe has some drug or alcohol issues, this member uh, is not the best husband or father, and the president works around them. In this Congress, it's the Speaker of the House who has the big, ambitious ideological agenda, and the president who doesn't have much of one. And it is the Congress that then has to accommodate the human weakness of the president, and in particular his financial irregularities and his connections to um, Russian intelligence, because otherwise they won't be able to get done what they want done. Remember, Republicans have won the popular vote in one of the past seven presidential elections, and their agenda is substantially unpopular. Paul Ryan, over the next 18 months, has a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. He's not going to want to check up on Donald Trump because Donald Trump won't sign his bills in that case. But, but there does seem to be such a divide between what Donald Trump at least says he wants America to be and so much of what uh, Paul Ryan or others have tried to make America. I mean, Paul Ryan is working very hard on some reforms of entitlement programs that Donald Trump doesn't seem at all interested in touching. That's the that's the key issue for Paul Ryan. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't seem like he wants to spend any time or his own capital helping Paul Ryan do what he needs to do. But he's uh, Ryan will get enough of what he wants to be kept on board. Uh, Ryan wants a big tax cut. He will get that. Uh, Ryan wants um, a, a big rollback of financial regulations. He's already collected on that. Um, and there's going to be some kind of muddle on Obamacare that is going to give Ryan not all of what he wants, but some of what he wants. He will get enough to keep him quiet. You know, Donald Trump may not be the world's most strategic thinker, but he's a very shrewd assessor of what he needs to do to survive so that he can preserve his own agenda. But the story I tell, present in the piece is one of how it's not just one of usual wheeling and dealing. It is one of the slow um, decline of American democratic institutions. We live in an age of democratic decline. There are fewer democracies in the world today than there were a dozen years ago, and the quality of governance inside established democracies um, is declining. South Africa and Hungary and Venezuela, I go into... Um, Venezuela's move from being a democracy to not being one. Um, I go into detail on this, and I show how that works. It, one of our vulnerabilities is we have a way too dramatic vision of what the end of democracy looks like. We have these images from the 1930s and 40s of marching battalions and ranting dictators. But in the 21st century, it doesn't look like that. It's not so dramatic. It's, it's not done in the name of ideology. It's name, done in the name of stealing. And it's not done by violence and coercion. It's done by corruption and deception.
This is John Dankowski. I'm sitting in for Colin McEnroe on The Scramble today. If you want to join the conversation on Twitter, it's at WNPR Colin, and I'm talking with David Frum from The Atlantic. And that starts with these subtle erosions that, that you've been speaking of. Uh, I'll get to the press, which obviously I, I care about and you care about quite a bit in a moment, but but let's talk about the courts. His, his direct challenge to the court's ruling over the course of the last few days around his, his immigration ban calling judges, so-called judges, loudly, I suppose, tweeting about him taking uh, courts uh, to task on this. What does this do for this American notion of checks and balances, three independent, distinct parts of a government that are supposed to balance each other so that we get the best possible result? Well, the courts are will be the hardest part of the U.S. government for Donald Trump to defeat. Uh, But while it's hard to defeat the courts, it's not so hard to stay out of court. Uh, The place where the president is normally overseen is by Congress. That's where he's going to be or has defeated oversight. The president is also overseen by internal mechanisms in the executive branch, the executive – sorry, the inspectors general that are attached to every department and most agencies of government, Um, the U.S. attorneys who can initiate investigations. Those two, they're all presidential appointees and they can be defeated and Donald Trump is at work to defeat them now. yeah, I don't think we're going to see the end of elections or the end of the First Amendment or the courts are going to be you know, full of um, hacks. I don't think that's going to happen. It's, it, um, the, the courts will become more conservative. It's true. Uh, there are 100 vacancies out of the 900 or so um, are scheduled, Article Three courts. They'll become more conservative. But that's not where I worry most. One of the places I worry a lot is about the federal, um, federal civil service. One of the big Republican projects has been to make it much easier to fire civil servants. In general, you might think this is kind of a good idea. I mean, there are a lot, we know all the cases about the, like the EPA employee spent all day watching pornography and it took, what, three years to get rid of him. But if you have a highly kleptocratic president who has no respect for norms at a time when it's made much easier to fire people from civil service jobs, it's not hard for the imagination to see where that's going to go. Well, and, and we'll play that out for us. Where does it go? When, when, if civil service jobs be, begin to, to go away, what, what happens then to our democracy? What happens then is um, people at the CIA who know too much about Donald Trump's Russia connections um, are confronted with the fact they could be fired tomorrow. Um, and so either they should go quiet or they risk seeing their careers end. Um, you have people who um, uh, are in charge of enforcing the various rules that the Trump family might find inconvenient um, or publishing financial information that they might find inconvenient. They suddenly have to worry that they could lose their jobs. Um, and what you will see is the federal civil service gradually bringing itself closer into line um, with the pr- with the president's not public-spirited agenda. I mean, you may or may not like what Donald Trump is theoretically committed to doing, but his real agenda is a personal one. It's about self-aggrandizement and self-enrichment. The the scenario you just played out, though, David, I, I see as a member of the press, what I see is, is an entirely new class of whistleblowers, people from the civil service uh, who are from every, everywhere from the CIA to the EPA who are shunned by this administration because maybe they know too much, but who now are able to tell a story about the, the corruption, the lies, the deceit, the very things that not only got them out of a job, but maybe imperil American democracy. Uh, what role does the press play or do the rest of us play in actually hearing those stories as, as they happen? Well, this is our challenge. My article is, um, stresses again and again, 
I'm telling a story here a little bit like the last section of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, where Scrooge asks the ghost, are you the ghost of Christmas yet to come? Are you a vision of things that will be or things that may be? And I stress again and again, these are things that may be. They do not have to be if we respond in the right way. Um, if, for example, if we make sure that um, people who are, are fired because they stand up to illegal orders or improper orders, if they find a, um, if they if they instantly find themselves able to find work again, if they find support in their communities, um, they will be empowered to do it. If we be, remain insistent on um, being better news consumers than we've been, verifying where we get our information, don't just forward that Facebook story uh, that happens to gratify your sympathies. Click through the link and make sure it comes from somebody reputable um, and someone someone who not. Not that the press is always right. Um, established media are often wrong. But a, a media company that has a commitment to telling the truth and correcting mistakes when it discovers that it's made them. So then talk about the role of the, the so-called traditional press and the ways in which you worry in your story about press uh, freedoms being eroded. We've already seen massive frontal attacks on the press as an op position party to to the president of the United States. And I think all of us in this world are somewhat put it back on our heels in terms of what our job is right now. But how do you see the power of the press such as it is being eroded uh, in a more autocratic society? Um, there are social media has enabled new mechanisms of, of intimidation. Let me point to, uh, again, a real life example. Um, you may remember the head of the uh, union local at uh, the carrier plant who disputed the president's claim about the number of jobs that was saved. Um, now, it's unthinkable in the United States that any agency of government would harass that person for doing that. Unthinkable. But when the president tweeted out his name and denounced him, that guy was subjected to death threats on such a scale that he had to leave his house and find refuge elsewhere. It doesn't – if you're receiving death threats, it's not very <laughs> – I mean, I guess it's sort of satisfying to know they're, that they're coming from people who are not on the government payroll as opposed to people who are on the government payroll. But they're just as threatening and you have to defend yourself. And it's just as intimidating to people and especially to journalists and especially to the women in journalism who have been often the target of Trump troll attacks to know, hey, the, the person who's watching me through the window or who's standing there at the bus stop when I pick up my children from school, that's not a government agent. That's just some Trump fanatic who's been set in motion by an angry tweet from the president. I think one of the real examples that I have in mind of, of what our future looks like is the incident at Comet Pizza. And for those of your listeners who don't remember the story, Comet Pizza is a popular pizza place in northwest Washington. Uh, they have ping pong tables, so a lot of young birthday parties take, their, um, take place there, a lot of kids. Some of the Trump supporters convinced themselves totally insanely that this place was at the center of a child sex trafficking ring. And, okay, that's ludicrous and nuts. Um, I've spent many birthday parties at Comet Pizza myself, I can attest. There's, they don't even have a basement, uh, so there's, there's no possibility. And they don't have a child sex ring, obviously. Uh, but a gunman showed up there and fired a shot into the floor. Uh, and mercifully, none of the children who were having, none of the young families who were there were hurt, but they easily could have been. Again, not an agent of the state, but one of the people who tw sent in motion the false reports that, that put that man there with his gun was the son of the national security advisor, General Michael Flynn. Now that is, that even if that's not government intimidation, it's highly intimidating and people involved with the government are involved with that intimidation.
So a, a big question that everyone has who, who is thinking this way, as you are right now, David, is, is what exactly do we do about that? I have just sensed in talking to many, many people from around our state uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks, a, a powerlessness to do anything about uh, this rise of fake news stories, this um, attack on the press, all of the things that you've outlined in the story, which nobody wants to get out of control. So what do you do about it as a citizen, you know, right now? Uh, what you do about you, you know, we've inherited a lot of institutions from our parents and grandparents, both institutions of democracy at home and, and the Western alliance abroad and the global free trade system. And they're all now under attack. And maybe, I mean, I, of course, Donald Trump deserves most of the blame, but maybe we haven't done our best job in protecting and caring for those things. We have to rededicate ourselves to them. We're learning. I think a lot of people, especially on the liberal side, have rediscovered why we have a CIA and why it's important to have intelligence agencies. I mean, it really, we saw a foreign power, Russia, reach into our democracy, attack people's email accounts, get information, publish them through WikiLeaks. And then we saw a candidate working hand in glove with WikiLeaks and therefore with Russian spies to use this information. Much of it, by the way, not all that exciting. Very little of it very exciting. But it could be misrepresented in such a way as to make it seem like he had a big story. Um, we've never seen a candidate behave in such a way. And uh, and there was no response. And that's why you need counterintelligence agencies to protect American liberty from for hostile foreign intelligence activity. We we have to rediscover that. We have to rediscover why we go to town halls and why we take part in um, small-scale politics. There, there have been a lot of demonstrations around the country, and demonstrations are exciting and mobilizing and empowering. But demonstrations are just the beginning of the story. You have to be in – it's the meetings that protect democracy. The demonstrations just get people energized to go to the meetings. Just get energized to go to the meetings, but there is such an erosion in democracy, such an erosion in uh, civics over the years that I wonder if if Americans right now have the tools to do the things that you're talking about. We we have given up on so many of these ideas of getting together to actually make change. A march does feel good, but people do kind of sit down after that. It's it's been happening a lot over the course of the last several decades. Well, I end the article in the Atlantic by. Um, stressing that this is a test for all of us, um, and we are each of us going to have to step up and um, protect things that are precious to us. Um, there are we use this phrase checks and balances, but that's a metaphor, not a mechanism. I, I quote in the article one of the founders of the Atlantic, a writer named Just, James Russell Lowell, more than a hundred years ago, who wrote the, against the idea that the Constitution is a machine that would go of itself. We say constitutional machinery; it's just people. It's just you. Um, and so the question I end the article with is, for all of us, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? And you, and you, and you, and me too. And when you, when you talk about people having more, more power than, than they think, th- there is, I think, a, an optimistic sense that a presidency like this, a divisive presidency that has us thinking about these questions, m- may actually lead to something better. Is there is there a part of you every day, David, from the wakes up thinking, you know what, this might not be such a bad thing. We may actually be heading in a direction that will save us from some of the things that we've been complacent about over the course of the last several decades. I, that's a great question. I do think that a lot. I mean, I see that when, you know, I'm not a liberal, I'm a very conservative person. Um, I've been w- talking about Putin and what is happening in Eastern Europe now for a decade. With, and suddenly I noticed that people on the Democratic side are, are paying attention. Um, now, I served in the Bush administration, and um, 
have been defending for 15 years, the work of agencies like the CIA and NSA. They, keep, they don't just keep us safe. They also keep us free. Um, and I, I'm heartened that people are discovering. I suddenly realize why, you know, as, as you watch this Russian espionage empower Trump, um, they, people are realizing, yeah, that's why we have these these agencies. Um, I'm heartened to see people um, caring more about what they read. I have everyone in media has noticed this. That it's not just that we're we seem to have more readers; they're reading harder. I've noticed that, and I've noticed that with the response to this article. And one other thing that is happening that I think is really kind of wonderful is I've begun, you know. Normally, if, you, if you're in the media, you open your email or your Twitter account, and the messages are not 99 out of 100 negative, 999 out of 100 negative, 1,000 negative. Yeah. That's just the way it's normally been. Suddenly, people are realizing, you know what? These journalists, they're doing something important, and a lot of them are under pressures. And again, I stress, especially the women who are subject to often the most obscene kind of abuse. And people are suddenly sending nice emails saying, just, just a note to say I appreciate what you do. You think, you know, for a group of people who work out of public spirit and tend not to be super well paid, uh, one of those emails keeps people going. And one supportive email makes up for a thousand obscenities. Uh, but before I let you go, I, you mentioned your, your time in the Bush administration. And, and I have to ask, because I, I think you made a really good point about um, people believing once again in the intelligence apparatus of America. I, I wonder, as you look back at the time leading up to the Iraq war, how much the the intelligence that led to the Iraq war, how much that eroded what we think about American intelligence gathering and whether or not that's played into the kind of travesty that led into uh, the Hillary Clinton email scandal that led into uh, Trump and Putin that has us questioning uh, all the time what American intelligence really does. Yeah. Now, look, it's a, it's a good it's a good point. Um, and. You don't want to fall into the opposite extreme of believing whatever J. Edgar Hoover tells you to do. Um, and these agencies need a lot of oversight. And no question, we you know, we just got the weapons of mass destruction story wrong in, in 2002, 2003. And, and we got into a lot of trouble as, as a result of that mistake. Um, it's, you, it's not a rejection of the essence of an institution, though, to notice that it, um, that it makes errors. Think the press makes errors, politicians make errors, democracy often brings us unworthy presidents. But we still have to believe in these systems, and we just have to keep resolving to make them work better. I just want to ask you one last thing, David. And, and it's I think it's really different for Donald Trump than any other president, maybe because of the technology and maybe because of his his temperament. But you you wrote speeches for for George W. Bush, and you and you are a writer, and words matter to you. And and I'm wondering how much you think we should listen to what the president of the United States says or tweets, or writes. I mean, should we be taking it as seriously, as literally as some of us do? Should we be taking it more seriously than some of us do? Um, Donald Trump has the power on a minute and a half's notice to more or less end human civilization here on this planet. Um, I think we should take what he says very seriously. Um, when the pre- If the president, the president is followed every day by someone who carries um, a set of computer codes and computer instruments that allow him to control America's nuclear forces. If the president decides to launch, um, the officer, his job is to verify the identity of the president with a series of biometric tests, a voice, iris, thumbprint, and then that's it. The president gives the order, the missiles launch. Um, it is an awesome power of life and death that is entrusted to the president of the United States. You'd better take him seriously. And when people say, well, don't, okay, don't take him literally. What they're saying is 
Don't believe him when he says what he means. Believe instead what I tell you he means. I, I think I'm going to listen to him. Um, and what I'm hearing is alarming in the deepest way. David Frum is senior editor at The Atlantic, and his uh, really brilliant piece in the March issue of The Atlantic is called How to Build an Autocracy. Uh, David, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. All I want is the truth now. Just give me some truth now. I've had enough of reading things by neurotic, psychotic, pig-headed politicians. All I want is the truth now. Just give me some truth now. All I want is the truth now. Just give me some truth. Hi, I'm Jeff Cohen sitting in for Colin McEnroe. Uh, You're listening to The Scramble on The Colin McEnroe Show, and we're switching gears to Hartford now, asking this question. What should we do with the Excel Center? It's a decades-old arena that's surviving one expensive patch at a time. But surviving's a generous way to describe it, and now it's decision time. Fix it, knock it down, replace it, do nothing. Governor Daniel Malloy has his answer. He's backed a $250 million plan to renovate the arena over four years. But some say the price tag is just too steep. The state of Connecticut doesn't have any money. I think that fact has to sink in with us, and we can't afford to keep putting into projects like the Excel Center. That's State Senator Joe Markley. Meanwhile, Malloy and Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin recently stoked the lingering hopes of hockey fans statewide who are still, despite it all, hoping, hoping for an NHL team. A couple weeks back, Malloy reached out to the NHL and offered the Excel Center as home for the wayward New York Islanders. So here we are. In just a bit, we'll want to hear from you. What do you want for the Excel Center, and how much should you as a taxpayer pay? You can join the conversation on Twitter at WNPR Colin or call us, 860-275-7266. But first, joining us by phone is Jeff Jacobs, sports columnist at the Hartford Current. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank thanks you. for joining us. And also in studio is Tom Condon, longtime current reporter, columnist, and editorial writer, now working with the Connecticut Mirror. Hi, Tom. Hey, Jeff, and hey, Jeff. Hey, everybody. A fun little story. As a a new reporter, Tom uh, offered to take me, when I was a new reporter, uh, on a tour of the city of Hartford back when I was covering development. This is over a decade ago. And here we are still covering the (laughs) (laughs) the future of what we then called the Civic Center. So, Tom, let's start with you. Help me, if you would, put this all into context for listeners who maybe haven't followed the Excel Center's history What's the like, the sixty second story of how it got to where we are today? Well, yeah, there, there was a lot of momentum in the late sixties, early seventies to develop downtown Hartford, from which came the idea of a the idea of a multi use arena. Uh, there was a debate about whether to put it downtown or to put it in the South Meadows next mm. to the highway, and the the downtown forces won. And ever since, that's that's been considered a, a good decision. It has brought a lot of life to downtown. It opened in nineteen seventy five. With a huge gala weekend, headlined by Glenn Campbell, <laughs> uh, we then had, uh, I believe it was the New England Whalers come uh, playing in there, eventually became the Hartford Whalers of the NHL. Roof collapsed in 1978 uh, under a huge load of ice and snow, turned out to have been poorly designed. Mm. Uh, reopened under the slogan, Bigger and Better, in 1980, has been in use ever since. Uh, is now shot. The lifespan of buildings built at that time was 25 to 30 years max. We've reached that. 
uh, buildings, building systems that go. So it is, it's, it is put up or shut up time. And and to that point, Tom, this arena, as as we see it now, it is put up or shut up time. Third, Forty years ago, when it opened. Uh, was it the shiny new toy? I mean, oh, you bet. Oh, well, state of the sure, uh, absolutely, state of the art. But uh, you know, they don't build them like the Roman Colosseum anymore. I mean, and and so, you know, the the, the whalers the, didn't play there, by the way. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, they were a little farther north. But the um, no, they, it 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 was. But uh, you know, in the modern modern construction of arenas, it, it doesn't. They're building. They're, the newer ones are lasting a little longer. But this whole idea, these low seats and sports bars and and uh, all these bells and whistles that mm. generate revenue. The the Excel Center does not have. It also has really aging infrastructure. Oh, completely. Oh, yeah. I mean, things are breaking for which there are no longer parts being made. I mean, it it is very tough to keep the building going. Jeff, uh, this is an arena story. It's a hockey story. It's a it's a development story. You recently wrote in the current about a well earned skepticism around the project, and you're but you 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 really still nevertheless think it should get funded. Tell me why. Oh, Jeff, look. it's uh, publicly funded arenas and stadiums in any way, shape, or form, of which I don't want to painfully document them, that some of them are spectacular failures and some of them are spectacular uh, successes, depending mm-hmm. on what venues and what cities, what markets. Uh, but, yeah, I, I could uh, – it's where I come to go to get bashed by the left who knows that for sure that if any money, public money goes into a – Stadium arena that all education, if none of it goes there, all education will be solved. Mm. And then there's not a dime on, on, on the other side, there's not a dime for anything. So I know I can get bashed. I love this <laughs> because I know I can get bashed from both the left and the right on, on, on this issue. So, uh, but yeah, it's just like Tommy said, it's put up or shut up time now. And it's kind of sad too that, that this, this, just what Tom said, the arena structured in a way with all sorts of general seating and sky boxes, hmm. which were once considered the, you know, the de rigueur of, of athletic uh, uh, arenas. And now it's the exact opposite. Get people on uh, smaller boxes closer to the ice or the, uh, or the, uh, 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 or the court. Look, look the, the NHL is a straw man argument. I hesitate to even bring it up because it invites cynicism because everybody's going to say, you know the NHL is never going to come, and it takes away from – what I believe that the the XL Center should be should the two hundred fifty million dollar route is the right one. So to that point, and, uh, to that yeah, you, know, you said the the cynicism. Look, yeah, the baseball park, which is well documented. Those those, I guess they're I'm going to call them uh, uh, unsavory people that were involved in the soccer stadium thing, which I which I was never for. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of lot of healthy and unhealthy cynicism there. But Jeff, if I could get back to then also then that question of let's take the NHL out of it to both of you. Let's take the NHL out of it entirely. It could happen. It's it, it, it but it can't happen as it stands now. No one knows. No one knows, and it can't happen as the stadium stays Correct. now. Absolutely. Correct. Um, does Jeff does does Hartford need an arena, and does the state of Connecticut need Hartford to have an arena uh, at its core? I I vote yes, Jeff. Uh, uh, I know there's I judging by my emails and Twitter uh, uh, responses, there's a lot of people that disagree with it. I I believe it's quality of life issue. I think that we lose we have spectacular.
spectacular young people in Connecticut. Mm. Well-educated, affluent families, wonderful towns and cities in, 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 this, uh, in this state. And then we lose them to Boston and New York, and we've lost them for years and years and years. When you have an educated and successful uh, 20s and 30-somethings, they want to have a full life. Mm. And that's where I say then we have to sustain them with uh, entertainment, sports. Uh, I, I think it's part of a fuller life experience that I think that if we don't have, then, we're, then we are uh, counting on casinos 40 miles away or cities 100 miles away uh, or perhaps a gambling uh, arena slash arrangement in Springfield mm. to carry us. And I still believe in the capital city. And, and a quality of life. That's so. I vote yes. So, Tom, let me ask you to that point. Does you and I were speaking before the show? You could knock it down. You could do what New you, Haven. You, you could. You could. You could do New Haven. Right. Right. And and downtown New Haven is is prospering without an arena. But every city's and there are a number of reasons for that. But every city's different. Look, the the University of Connecticut needs a showplace for its athletic teams. I mean, that's just the, that's the, that's the nature of college sports today. And and many 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 thousands of people in the state find it wonderfully entertaining. And and Jeff's right. It it uh, a lot of housing is being built in downtown Hartford. Well, the the uh, sports and concert venues, you know, are a reason to live there. Are, mm-hmm. And 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 so the one so it one helps the other. It's also, you know, all roads lead to Hartford. They don't lead to stores. Um, you know, it, it is uh, you know it is an economy of scale to have to have a major arena, and and yeah, this a, a region this size in a state this size ought to have a major multi-use arena. I mean that that is the nature of life today. Uh, every other metro this size has one, and right. a lot of them are expanding theirs. But and and you're not not to be satisfied by say Bridgeport or an arena in Bridgeport or an arena at the casinos. That that's not what you're talking about. No, 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 no. I, I, but both of those are both of those are they're fine, but they're smallish arenas. Mm. Um, you know, a, a a venue with UConn as the prime tenant with with minor league or major league hockey, whatever happens, with for concerts and political gatherings. Uh, you know, uh, Obama came, uh, president, you know, presidential candidate, sure. Barack Obama came in 08 and filled the Civic Center. Well, the, the XL Center. Uh, <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, uh, let me just remind you, I'm Jeff Cohen. I am not Colin McEnroe, but I'm sitting in his comfy chair, and uh, I am, for the time being, hosting the Colin McEnroe Show in his absence. Uh, we're talking about the future of the XL Center, uh, formerly the Civic Center here in downtown Hartford. There's a plan to renovate it at a cost of about $250 million. Uh, and that would get it almost ready for the NHL, but there's still no team immediately in sight. If you'd like to give us a call and comment, you can at 860-275-7266. Let's go ahead and take a call. I hope I do this right. Mary is in Hartford. Hi, Mary. Hi. How are you? you? Know, I, I usually are, always advocate for the improving the rivers, but this time around I just want to say I think Hartford and New England should go for an extreme makeover and go for the New England Olympics and uh, mm. get private funding for your highways, for the railroads, for public transportation, for all your different stadium needs, and, um, and work regionally to make that happen. And, um, and how does the XL Center figure into that then? Well, I think it would be one of uh, a number of venues um, that would right. need to be upgraded. And I think by the time a lot of if you look at Olympics, um, there's a lot of failures, but there's also successes. 
um, uh, you know, riddled into it and, um, you know, how that works uh, when after the teams leave is a lot about uh, planning. Um, uh, it changes the housing structure. If sure. you, if you, the way you design the villages, it can improve the waterways. If you, if you, if the planners make that happen. And um, honestly, I think by the time that uh, process would uh, unfold, mm. um, you would have populations maybe shifting into this area because of climate change and because of other issues. Well, thank you, Mary, for your call. That's that that is a larger point for for an even greater ambition. I, I think I think. Um, there is the question of whether or not to, to, to we can even draw the, uh, the NHL, much less an entire regional uh, uh, Olympic effort. But, Tom, you, you had thoughts. No, I, it, it, the NHL is, uh, you know, it, it, it's an intriguing, you know, it's a, as Governor Malloy rightly said, it is a long shot. And, um, you know, and Jeff can certainly speak to this. But, but you know, the world, it, the Whalers left 20 years ago, and the world has changed since then. And the some of the Sun Belt teams, you know, they were trying to expand the national footprint and all, but some of the Sun Belt teams haven't worked out, yeah. and and maybe rivalries, which are spawned by proximity, are more important than they were then, and you know, maybe less travel expenses a factor, and the TV market I think has changed. So you know, is it you know, it's a long shot, but 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 with the new building, at least Hartford is at the table. All right, I'm Jeff Cohen. That's Tom Condon. Joining us by phone is Jeff Jacobs. We got to go to a quick break. When we come back, Jeff, we'll turn back to you and talk a little more about the uh, the. There's the song. We'll talk about the uh, reality or lack thereof of the NHL coming back to Hartford. Uh, give us a call if you want to join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Uh, you can also reach us on Twitter at WNPR Colin. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from Jonathan McNichol and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Steve Weeks. You can subscribe to The Colin McEnroe Show on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. On tomorrow's show, just in time for Valentine's Day, revisit our conversation about polyamory. And now, back to Jeff. Hey, it's me. I'm Jeff Cohen sitting in. That's weird. Sitting in for Colin McEnroe, hoping not to break anything while I'm here. And we're talking about hockey, the Excel Center, and the future of the aging arena. Just about every day there's a, a new gremlin living someplace in some system. Uh, we can't even find all the wires in the building. You know, in the world of Internet uh, and iPhones, uh, we're dealing with pneumatic tubes for switches. So uh, this thing is out of a Marx Brothers movie. That's Mike Freemuth, the head of the Capital Region Development Authority, which runs the center. He gave me a tour recently. And we learned a few things. The lights are so old that they're loud. The ventilation's so bad that the elephant smell takes weeks to go away after the circus leaves. And the building is in near-constant low-level crisis. I don't think I'm overstating it. Joining us to talk again are uh, two legends from the Hartford Current, Tom Condon here in studio, sports columnist uh, and sports columnist Jeff Jacobs. Jeff, I want to ask you again Tell me, uh, you know, read the tea leaves on the NHL question for me on this one. Okay, they, uh, just a background. They, they finally went ahead and picked an expansion city, which is Las Vegas, this past year after much talk. Quebec was left out in the cold. Uh, the argument against them is, they're out, is their geography way out there and, more importantly, the Canadian dollar, which was very strong when this whole process started a few mm. years ago and was not as strong when they got around to uh, uh, to picking the team, uh, 
the NHL has had more teams in the East and the West, and if they could have a perfect uh, world, someone would build a brand-new shiny uh, arena in Seattle or maybe Portland, but probably Seattle, uh, where they put it. That's where they'd love to go. So Seattle, Quebec, and Kansas City, which I do not think is a great hockey pick, but they, they've been ready for years, and they could they could turn the lights on the NHL tomorrow. Those three places are are uh, ahead of Hartford. Even mm-hmm. if, I think, uh, except for Kansas City, even if Hartford got the $250 million uh, done, it would still it's still probably lag behind those uh, market some. Uh, having so, said so, that, so, so I, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I just want to finish it because it's not yeah. easy. It's not an easy answer, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, this thing it changes month to month because you have three, four, five uh, markets that aren't doing well. Islanders, Carolina Hurricanes, who, have been, who they've just denied recently, are looking at Quebec. Florida Panthers, Arizona State recently turned down uh, uh, opportunity. To go in with the with the Arizona NHL franchise to build a new arena, so that those things are always every month or six months mm-hmm. brings a new story of availability. So you've got to get into a game, mm-hmm. and that's why I applaud uh, the mayor and the governor for just putting a letter out to the Islanders because uh, they either can opt out at 18 or the or Barclays Center can opt, opt out at 19. And it looks like the Islanders. I never. I always thought Barclays Center in Brooklyn was a bad choice mm. for them. The leading candidate there is, is to build somewhere in Queens, City Field, or at Belmont Park, or they could go back to the a refurbished uh, Nassau Coliseum, which isn't, which isn't, a, I don't think, is a great choice. But, but your or point, Jeff, you, Jeff, your point though, on to that point is, is that Hartford can't get in the game if it's not in the game to begin with. Right. If it doesn't want to be, it fits in with the XL Center, Jeff, in the sense of either you're in or out. Right. So you know, so uh, that that's that. So if you want to be in, and it could take over ten years, fifteen years, and it won't. Maybe it's not this Islanders thing. Maybe it's another franchise eight years from now. Got it. All right. Let's take a couple phone calls. James from West Haven. Uh, James, thanks for calling. What's your thought? Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, yeah. From the perspective of a young adult who came to Connecticut for college and stayed here. I really have to say that Connecticut, I feel, has a lot to offer without having a huge central metropolitan hub with a large uh, entertainment complex like an arena. Uh, Our proximity to larger uh, states and larger cities is well enough, and we have a lot of small towns that offer a lot more um, experiences than major cities do. Um, Our cities like New Haven and Hartford aren't Chicago. They're not Pittsburgh even. Uh, regarding the community of life, uh, the quality of life um, comment that someone made, uh, I think we need to focus on the quality of life of those who are most impacted by our economy. As a young white adult male, I don't need more entertainment. I don't need to be catered to in that way to stay. Mm. Uh, maybe there are some do, but those aren't the kind of people that I think we need in Connecticut. I think we need people that are looking out for the social welfare. So if someone can show me that an arena is really going to boost the economy of those most marginalized, I'm all for it. Otherwise, right. I think we need to focus on other things. Thanks, James. James making two points. One, he doesn't necessarily need an arena in a place like Hartford or New Haven. Maybe that's a, that's, that's the way farts like me think about it. <laughs> uh, and and then uh, also making a case that there, was, there are better ways to spend money uh, when it com- comes to not just development but progress. Uh, let's take one more call. Dennis from Hartford. Hi, Dennis. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm actually, I'd like to follow up on what the last caller had to say, which is essentially that if you need some sort of evidence of the economic driver aspect of a you know a successful civic center, just go to Hartford one night when there's an event in town, and then go to Hartford another night when there isn't. Hmm. You know the the disparity is pretty obvious. 
Um, but what I called in to say was that I've been living here for about three years in Hartford, and I've noticed that there are a lot of people who are of a mind that, you know, give up on downtown Hartford, all is lost, it's a wasteland, it's not worth your time, attention, and money. Um, and I don't think that you can take that approach and then at the same time shoot down any idea towards reviving it and making it a better place. Um, and for the record, I don't think that it's such a terrible place. I enjoy downtown Hartford a lot. Mm. Um, but I just think that it's intensely counterproductive to, you know, say that it's there's problems with it and then shoot down any idea toward a solution for them. Got it. Uh, Dennis, thank you for your call. Let's go to Tom just to wrap up. We've got a couple minutes left. Tom, what's your thoughts? Well, a quick, uh, a quick thought here. You know, it, 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 uh, would, uh, I think it was James who suggested that Connecticut doesn't need a big city, but that, that, that's kind of a growing uh, b- b- debate now. Mm. I mean, Connecticut is essentially Massachusetts without Boston. Um, if, if you if you uh, uh, you notice that GE didn't move to you know Fall River, I mean, GE moved to Boston. It, and a live, a vibrant, large city seems seems in most cases around the country to be a good thing. Sure. And since we're not likely to create one because our nearly all our cities are geographically tiny, the best we can do is regions that act like cities. Mm. And regions that act like cities, for the most part around the country, have a have a central arena, as he suggested, as part of a, a broader mix of economic and quality of life amenities. Jeff, uh, I'm gonna, thank you, Tom. Jeff, I'm going to give you the last word on this. Uh, what are the chances that, that the legislature actually passes uh, uh, $125 million this year? I have no idea, Jeff. I have <laughs> no idea. I, I'm not, it's not my game. I, I know there's going to be a lot, like I said when we were talking earlier, there's going to be a lot of push from both the left and the right. Mm. I would just remind them that the University of Connecticut Athletics is at a horrible point themselves uh, with a Power Five conference that's slipping away. The SEC money, $40 million going to each school, tiny million dollar, $2 million going to UConn Athletics. And they need the revenue from the big building as yeah. much as anything. So when you when you start minusing things, most don't say call somebody a dreamer or a schemer in the NHL. Also, way the UConn Athletics that was my last. I point. hate to cut you off, Jeff Jacobs. Thank you for joining us, Tom Condon. Thank you too. That about wraps up our time. I'm Jeff Cohen, uh, in for Colin McEnroe. Thanks to all the folks who make it fun to be here. He's back tomorrow with a panel about polyamory. I'm going to leave it at that. Thanks for listening.